Today's podcast is brought to you by Premium. With Premium, you always have a specialist in your corner to give you insights to those tough patient cases. It's free, and you get patient-specific answers fast. Check out their website using the special fellow on-call link at tfoc.primum.co. Hey friends, this episode of The Fellow on Call is not meant to be used for medical advice and is intended for educational purposes only. Patient information has been modified to ensure privacy. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Welcome to another episode of The Fellow on Call, the Hemong podcast. We're coming at you from Merlot University Medical Center. I'm Ronak. I'm Vivek. And I'm Dan. In today's episode, we have our capstone series to round out our discussion about multiple myeloma. It's been an amazing past few weeks, and we're so excited to have Dr. Mani Moyudin that'll be joining us on this episode to talk about some of the nuances and gray areas in the treatment of multiple myeloma. I've been waiting so long for this episode. We spent so much time these last several weeks really slogging through everything myeloma, MGUS, smoldering myeloma, multiple myeloma, how to treat it, how to do all of these things, and really excited for this episode. It's really great to hear from him, and he gives really good advice at the end on the fact that myeloma is an art. There is a lot of evidence that isn't entirely clear, which we've emphasized in our last several episodes, and there are a lot of ways to do this, and it's really just an amazing episode to hear from him. And I think, and I think, Vivek, to that point about that final statement that he makes, so listeners definitely do stay till the end. You'll want to hear this. But I think after hearing that, I found comfort in the fact that myeloma is really confusing. And it, it's really hard as a trainee to know what the quote right answer is in terms of picking the right regimen. But as he highlights, it's often a very nuanced discussion and there's a lot of moving parts. And so really, it is truly an art. So listeners, we don't want to keep you hanging. Let's go ahead and roll that show. Well, guys, welcome back to another episode of the Fellow on Call, the Hemonk Podcast. We are so excited to have another guest with us for our Myeloma series. This time, it is Dr. Mani Moyudin, who's joining us from the University of Utah. Dr. Moyudin, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad to be here. We're, we're so excited. And anybody that's active on Med Twitter knows that Mani's very active on Med Twitter. And so we're excited to kind of pick his brain about this topic of multi-myeloma that we've been tackling for weeks now. Uh, to, to kick things off, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? And, you know, we always like to ask our guests one, at least one fun fact about themselves. Absolutely. So I'm originally from Pakistan. I did my medical school there. And then I did my residency and fellowship at the University of Kansas. And now I'm at the University of Utah. I'm about a year and a half in of being and attending and I focus on myeloma and bone marrow transplant. Um, I guess the fun thing about me is that I'm kind of obsessed with skiing nowadays and I just learned how to ski like two years ago. So I'm far from being good at it, but uh, it's one of the good things about life here in Utah is that um, you can sort of ski. Uh, I, I mean, you can ski and work the same day, right? Like I can't think of any other place in the country where you can technically be on call, right? So you can round in the morning. And then in the afternoon, you're on a ski slope and you're still technically on call and you can, you know, take your pages up there, you know, on the ski lift. So that is something that <laughs> is very unique about, about life here, which I'm very thankful for and uh, is a source of much joy for me. So, yeah, that's one interesting fact. I, I know that uh, I grew up in Knoxville, Tennessee, so we had uh, this one ski place and it was artificial snow and it was pretty much just ice. So I always grew up pretty much hating skiing because it would just hurt whenever I would fall. But you know, I, I feel like everybody I know who lives in Utah is like, it's just amazing that the scenery is beautiful. You can go skiing when you want. You can go hiking. It's it's uh, it's something to look forward to. If if I if only my wife would let us move to the West Coast, you know, out there, I would I would totally go to Utah. Absolutely. Let me know if you come down here. We'd love to hit the slopes with you. Oh yeah, yeah yeah for sure. All right. So just to to, to kick things off, uh, Vivek prepared a case to kind of guide our discussions, and then. And then, Mani, we'll kind of go round robin. We've all been thinking of, you know, some some questions that we've been unpacking ever since we started this myeloma series, and and we hope that you can shed some light on some of these areas that are a little bit more gray. All right. So let's start off with a case. Let's say that we've got a 55 year old female in our clinic with newly diagnosed IgA kappa multiple myeloma. 
let's say that her Kappa light chain is 100 and her Lambda light chain is 10. Let's just keep the numbers easy with a ratio of 10. And let's say that she has an M spike of 3.3. For this patient, she got a bone marrow biopsy. She had 50% plasma cells in her bone marrow. And her fish testing was unremarkable from the panel that was sent. So all we saw in our report was the fish testing was unremarkable. Her karyotype was also unremarkable at 46XX, analyzed in 20 cells in metaphase. So here we, here we have a patient who's got newly diagnosed IgA, multiple myeloma. And all the listeners now are thinking, wait a minute, how does she have multiple myeloma? What's the, what's the myeloma-defining event? And she did have a, have a PET-CT scan, which showed lytic lesions in L5, and L4. So she's got the lytic lesions, which really cinched the diagnosis of multiple myeloma. So Mani, there's a couple things that we had talked about in our previous episodes. We we defined what is generally considered a high-risk patient versus a standard-risk patient. I want to get your thoughts on what you define as a high-risk patient in multiple myeloma. And the second thing I want to know from you is when we get these karyotype reports, hers was normal, but we often see abnormalities in that karyotype report. How does that influence the risk stratification prognosis, and does it ever impact your treatment decisions in the induction setting? Absolutely. So such great questions. So one of the first things I, I want to ask about this patient is, so you said that the FISH report was was normal. I guess one of the key things to note is that was the FISH specimen, was that enriched for CD138 plasma cells? Because often the, the vast majority of patients uh, with multiple myeloma, provided you have a properly enriched specimen on which you're running the FISH on, you're going to find something, right? You're, you're going to either find hyperdiploidy, or you're going to find a translocation. Often, when it's a completely negative panel, then often what, what has happened is that it, you were unable to run it on a CD138 selected specimen. So you got to take those findings with a bit of a grain of salt that, you know, is it truly that there are no abnormalities or is it that we were unable to enrich and, and, and run the fish on the plasma cells? But let's assume that, you know, we we did and we didn't find any abnormality. I think that, you know, the definition of high-risk myeloma is something that as a field, we have uh, have had various definitions out there. And you can, you can have a very broad definition of high-risk myeloma that can end up capturing almost, you know, a majority of patients, or you can have a narrow definition. And I think there are many different ways to look at it, as, as you've already highlighted in your previous episodes. I think obviously fish and cytogenetic features are, are one of the most important way, right? So is there deletion 17P? Is there translocation 414 or 1416 or 1420? Is there gain 1Q? And are there multiple of these cytogenetic abnormalities? So that's one really important part, right? Is there extra medullary disease? That's another really important part. Are there circulating plasma cells? Plasma cell leukemia, that's another really important part. Having an ISS3, right? So a high beta 2 microglobulin, low albumin, I mean, that in itself is another high-risk feature. You know, not every high-risk is the same. I think high-risk exists on a spectrum. Having just gain 1Q and no other high-risk cytogenetic features, or if you have gain 1Q with some other hyperdiploidies, I would look at that differently than somebody with gain 1Q and deletion 17P um, or gain 1Q and 414. So it exists on a spectrum. But based on what you're telling me, this patient doesn't seem to have high-risk cytogenetic abnormalities. What was her RISS stage? She had a normal LDH. Her albumin was slightly low, but her beta-2 microglobulin was within normal limits. Okay. All right. And then I would assume that there weren't any circulating plasma cells that were seen on a peripheral smear. And the PET scan doesn't show any extra medullary, you know, plasma cytomas, any extra medullary disease. So I guess well, your question about how does that, how does the karyotype and how does, how, how do the fish results influence our treatment? So we have to first acknowledge that there's a dearth of randomized trials specifically for high-risk myeloma and that high-risk myeloma is underrepresented in, in clinical trials, right? Like most clinical trials, if they do report, you know, on high-risk myeloma, it's about 10, 15% of the, of the patient population. So my personal approach is actually for initial induction therapy, I am actually agnostic to the point uh, about whether they have high risk disease or not. And, I, and, I'm, and I'd love to elaborate on, 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 on why I do that. But for initial induction therapy, I think that 
and, and I recognize that it's based on an improvement in surrogate outcomes, but for somebody that's fit and young, such as this patient, I would prefer a four drug induction regimen. So that would probably be something like deratumumab, Velcade, Revlimid, and dexamethasone. That's based on the phase two Griffin trial. And I would actually argue that, um, you know, that regimen can be used for high risk or standard risk. And we can sort of dig deeper into that uh, later in the podcast. Um, I know that there's some schools of thought that would advocate for the use of carfilzomib, revlimid, dexamethasone, KRD, for high-risk myeloma. I do not belong to that school of thought. There is a randomized trial called the endurance trial that compared KRD versus VRD. It included patients with GAIN1Q and 414, which are very common findings that we have in high-risk. Admittedly, it did not include deletion 17P. Uh, it did not include um, 1416 or 1420. But that trial did not show a benefit with KRD compared to VRD. There is another trial in the newly diagnosed space, another large randomized trial, which was a comparison of carfilzomib melphalan prednisone versus Velcade melphalan prednisone in a transplant ineligible population called the Clarion trial. And that also showed no benefit to carfilzomib over Velcade. When you have two large randomized trials that have not shown a benefit, I am less inclined to trust uh, single arm studies that show an improvement compared to, you know, historical controls. Uh, so that's my philosophy. I don't see a convincing biological rationale either for why K would be better than V upfront for, for newly diagnosed. And also, even if there was a very minor nominal PFS advantage, I think that it would probably be negated by the fact that you would have K available at relapse if you didn't use it upfront. So my philosophy is DERA, Velcid, Revlimid, Dexamethasone for a fit patient like this based on the Griffin study, acknowledging that it's a surrogate, but with the hope that this translates to better long-term outcomes. So that would be my choice of induction therapy, regardless of risk. When a patient's going through induction therapy, at what point do you expect to see at least a PR? And, and when would you say we need to change course in therapy? We need to add something more? Or let's say we started with a DARA VRD approach. When would you switch to something like, let's say, DARA KRD? Or, or what would make you switch? At what time point? You, we have to understand that um, the trajectory of the decline in the numbers um, sometimes can does not necessarily correlate with risk. All right. That's one very important thing. So think of it as, you know, how I sometimes explain to, to, to trainees as small cell lung cancer, right? You give it, you give chemotherapy response right away, but the response is short lived. So there is some very interesting work and there's some discordance as well between the results, but there's some very interesting work that has shown that a very rapid and quick um, response sometimes predicts for, you know, worse disease outcome in the, in the long term. So we can see with high-risk myeloma, sometimes they respond very quickly, but, you know, the, the key thing is sort of keeping them in response. And we can, there's a subset of nations with myeloma who are, you know, using the Arkansas gene expression profiling schema. They're, you know, low risk. They're sometimes 11, 14 positive. These people take a really, really long time to respond, but they're low risk. It's okay. Is that overall trajectory is going down? That's fine. You don't have to change anything. So I think that there's a lot of nuance and, and there's a lot of you know factors to consider in the trajectory of the of the decline of the numbers. Let's say you've got you've given somebody you know three to four cycles already and they haven't even achieved a partial response. That is ominous. All right. Like that you know, if you haven't even had a 50% reduction in the M protein, I think by then you probably ought to consider switching things around. But if there's standard risk and if they're taking, you know, their slow time coming down um, and they're overall doing great, the quality of life has dramatically improved. I wouldn't change things around as long as things overall are coming good. And as I mentioned earlier during this podcast, I would be okay taking these people to transplant as well. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. So one of the things that I was wondering from your perspective, let's say that we chose to do something like VRD instead of DARA VRD. We just said, you know, we have the overall survival benefit from the SWOG study, and we we know that this triplet regimen is tried and true, have a lot of follow-up data. What pushes you to use DARA VRD as opposed to VRD? And is it just the hope that pushing people deeper, getting more MRD negativity will give them more treatment-free breaks? Or how do you think about that? So this is a question that I've thought about a lot, and I feel like my own thinking about this has evolved. And philosophically, 
here is how I approach it. All right. So when you're talking about a three drug versus a four drug regimen um, in this particular case, you got to look at what what it adds and what is the cost, right? What are the side effects? So in this particular situation, if you are to compare the toxicity and the quality of life, et cetera, in the four drug arm versus the three drug arm, you add a slightly higher incidence of neutropenia and perhaps a slightly higher risk of viral infections, you know, maybe a signal for that. But other than that, the addition of a quad, uh, so the addition of daratumumab to a three-drug regimen does not necessarily dramatically increase toxicity. And there were some studies presented at ASH 2022, which showed that the quality of life was actually, and again, not every quality of life study is perfect, but the quality of life was actually better and it became better quicker for the quad arm compared to the three drug arm. So you are adding a tiny little bit of toxicity, but you're adding a lot of improvement in a surrogate endpoint. All right. And I recognize that it is not overall survival. And it might very well be that on long-term follow-up OS is the same. How I think about it conceptually is that if I were a patient and I was coming in anyways every week for infusion and one more drug got added and it didn't dramatically worsen my quality of life, but it improved surrogates, which may over the long run improve long-term outcomes as well. It's going to take a really long time to find that though. I would want that. So PFS for three versus four, when a patient is coming in anyways, is uh, for me is acceptable, right? And surrogates are, you know, I, I mean, provided that there isn't more toxicity or death is, is acceptable. Now, the other way of looking at this or the other side of this is that there's some trials in myeloma where you can get a PFS advantage, but it comes at a heavy cost. So you can also get a PFS advantage in myeloma by augmenting Revlimid maintenance, right? So there's the Forte trial, and then there's the Atlas trial, which are looking at intensive maintenance strategies, meaning that, you know, you got somebody through a transplant, induction therapy transplant, and instead of doing Revlimid maintenance, you are now subjecting them to three years or, you know, several years of weekly infusion visits, right? I'm sort of simplifying the details of the trial, but I'm making a philosophical point here, right? Now, if you get a PFS advantage with that, right, with years of additional weekly infusions, I think that you're paying a really big price for a PFS advantage, right? Because the alternative was a pill. And now you, in all, in all certainty, the quality of life is going to be worse when you're coming in weekly for an infusion that causes, you know, shortness of breath and other side effects. So for that, PFS is not good enough, right? You want to, I want something more than that. So that is how I approach the four versus three question. I recognize that their costs to society and, you know, daratumumab is not an inexpensive drug, but if I use it, I use it for a short period of time during induction, right? During those four months. Um, and then we can talk about it in a little bit later. I don't use it, you know, long-term for maintenance after a transplant. So that is how I sort of weigh the fact that it's a surrogate outcome and then the risks and benefits. So uh, what Bonnie's telling us is that his approach is a quadruplet with DARA VRD for all comers, regardless whether they're a high risk or a standard risk patient. And w we have some data that we've talked about in our previous episodes and that that Mani just mentioned is the Forte trial that some people believe that, well, the higher risk patients in that trial did better, but that may have been related to this maintenance strategy. But like like Bonnie said, you know, if you're doing carfilzomib, revlimid maintenance long term that's lots of infusions lots of infusion time and is that going to translate into an overall survival advantage so i i find that really interesting that you know we it's always hard for me to know do i do a quadruplet or do do i do something like a triplet regimen yeah and i think for high risk like for the highest risk right like for deletion 17p double hit trans you know, i i actually do advocate for doublet maintenance so i think the and the results of the forte trial help uh, help me make that decision, but I don't extrapolate the results of the Forte trial for all comers. Although the Forte trial did show a PFS advantage for everybody, including high risk and standard risk, but I don't incorporate those results for standard risk patients. That's really interesting. And and you know, following up on that though, let's say in our patient, if she was to have some sort of renal dysfunction, and you know, creatinine clearance is roughly in the neighborhood of thirty to forty. What would be your approach in that situation, understanding that there are limitations to using Revlimid in, in somebody with, with renal dysfunction? Are you of the thought that, you know, considering thalidomide use, or are you of that thought or 
Are, are you someone that would opt for something like Cyborg D and then switching over? How do you approach that situation? So great question. So for, you know, I think for a creatinine grains that's in the ballpark of 30 to 40, um, I would feel comfortable using Revlimid. I think Revlimid can actually even be used in patients on dialysis. Like you have to just be very careful with the dosing and watch out for side effects. Admittedly, I don't personally use Revlimid when somebody's on dialysis, at least not up front, but it can be done. But for somebody who's 30 to 40, I would, you know, I would be okay with a Revlimid based regimen. For a lower creatinine clearance, what I have done, and I acknowledge that, you know, there, there's, you know, there are different ways that different people do this, is that I sort of start off with a Velcade and cyclophosphamide based regimen, right? That's the sort of the best data we have is, you know, for Cyborg D in that patient population. So start off with Cyborg D. You can some, you can, you know, there are many who extrapolate from the AL amyloid literature and, um, you know, data Cyborg D in the Andromeda trial in AL amyloid, which was a fairly frail patient population was hand, was handled pretty well. So there are many trials that are being done. There's many centers that have already pivoted towards using DARA Cyborg D uh, for these people with um, you know, low creatinine clearance, and then sort of transitioning uh, to a Revlimid-based regimen, maybe after a few cycles, um, once you've seen an improvement in the kidney function. But I think in general, starting with a cyclophosphamide and Velcade-based approach is, is reasonable for people whom you don't want to give Revlimid to because of their kidney function. And, and let's say in this patient, we're meeting them on the inpatient setting, you know, we were consulted as hematology, and you're trying to get them something, something now, would you, would your approach be, and let's say they're in that creatinine clearance of 40. There are some attendings that have told me before you can consider something like a pulse dose dexamethasone. They said, Hey, this is something that I've done before, but it's not standard routinely done. I wanted to get your thoughts on that is because we know that dexamethasone is, is highly potent for myeloma. And then the second question is, in that patient, would you just give them some Velcade, send them out, try to get the Revlimid approved and then bring them back in the outpatient setting? Yeah. So, you know, the good thing about Wellcade is that it can be given as an inpatient. It's relatively, relatively inexpensive compared to some of the other drugs. And the same can be said for cyclophosphamide. So if there's somebody whose creatinine clearance is truly low, and I suspect that it's related to myeloma, and I want to start treatment before they leave the hospital, I push for Cyborg D to be started while they're inpatient. I think that's what I've done the last several times this has happened, rather than just doing a pulse dose dex and then discharging and doing the rest of the treatment later. Revlimid, as you know, in the United States, you know, there's some, there's a decent amount of paperwork involved and it's, it, you can't really start that in the hospital. So Revlimid can wait. But if somebody truly needs treatment for myeloma immediately, it's, you know, Velcade and cyclophosphamide can be given. Giving daratumumab is fairly expensive um, and, you know, the hospital has to eat the cost. So there's some logistical considerations. Have I done that? Yes, I have in the past pushed for, you know, some approval for daratumumab. But generally speaking, I think the key drugs to give are Velcade and cyclophosphamide. And you can give them in the hospital. You can give some steroids as well before the patient leaves if you feel like it's necessary for kidney failure related to myeloma. So, you know, as you mentioned, Velcade is uh, an important component of this as, as well. And so what are your thoughts on twice weekly dosing versus weekly Velcade? I mean, weekly Velcade, it does seem to have less neuropathy, but at the same time, when you're looking at response rates, it seems like it may not be on the same level as twice weekly Velcade. So wh what's your general approach to that? So my general approach is fairly simple. I almost never use twice a week Velcade. I know that twice a week Velcade is what, what has been done in the pivotal trials, but I think there's enough real world evidence now that outcomes are fairly similar, right? Like the outcomes that really matter, like PFS, OS, et cetera, like they're fairly similar between once a week Velcade and twice a week Velcade. And twice a week Velcade has a lot more neuropathy. And it's a it's a big burden on, on patients to come in twice a week for treatment. So I actually almost never use twice a week Velcade. Um, I can't remember the last time I specifically ordered twice a week Velcade. So yeah, if I use Velcade, I use Velcade once a week. And I think that is actually consistent for most doctors um, in the country who see who see who see a lot of myeloma. They generally use once a week Velcade. If I ever see twice a week Velcade being given, it's usually in the community. I think most academic centers just use once a week Velcade based on the wealth of real world data that has shown fairly comparable outcomes and a lot less toxicity, a lot better quality of life with once a week Velcade. And, you know, of course, even with weekly Velcade, you can see some neuropathy, some toxicity with it. So how do you approach the 
sort of either discussion around dose reduction or what is your strategy for dose reduction in patients who who need it? Absolutely. So um, I am very proactive about discontinuing Velcade um, when I see early signs of neuropathy because in 2023, there are enough of other myeloma drugs available where you shouldn't really continue to give Velcade to somebody who's now developing neuropathy related to Velcade. That's my personal philosophy. I recognize that some other people might have different approaches. There's some people who pivoted away from using Velcade altogether, but my philosophy is that Every single time I see a patient, I ask them if they have any numbness or tingling in their hands and feet. If the numbness and tingling is just once in a while, not every day, then then I'm fine. I'm like, okay, let's continue. Let's watch closely. But if I see the slightest hint of numbness and tingling worsening, I stop the Velcade before it gets to the point where it's permanent, where it's debilitating, where you start developing autonomic neuropathy, you start having falls. I do think that today with once a week Velcade, provided you watch out and you discontinue early, it's very rare to see debilitating permanent peripheral neuropathy because if you catch it early and you stop it early, Velcade neuropathy is usually reversible. If I'm using Velcade for a prolonged period of time, for example, if I'm using it, let's say in the maintenance setting where they're going to end up needing it for a long period of time, you know, there's some precedence for giving Velcade once every two weeks. But generally in the induction thing, I use 1.3 milligram per meter square and I use it once a week. And if they start developing neuropathy, I, I get rid of it and I, you know, I can substitute it with carfilzomib. Or, you know, if they're done with most of their induction, you can just drop it all together and complete it with the remaining drugs. So that's my personal approach to Velcade with the goal of minimizing neuropathy and recognizing that there are other really good options out there. When you're in clinic and you're trying to gauge someone's degree of neuropathy, how are you asking this question to your patients? Because I, I, I use numbness and tingling, but I get a variety of different answers. Do you ever provide examples to your patients and Based on their answers, you're then able to grade what their degree of neuropathy actually is. So you're right that people give a whole bunch of responses to the question about numbness and tingling. I I sometimes ask about like functionally doing things, like if it gets to a point where they can't button their shirt, for example, that's a pretty ominous sign. And that's something I ask. I ask about issues with balance. I'm like, you know, since we've started treatment, have you felt more unsteady on your feet? Are you falling more often? Feel like you have less control when you're walking? And then I think that with these questions, I usually am able to capture, you know, any symptoms that they're having. I think it's really important to know what they were at baseline because a lot of people have some really mild pre-existing neuropathy once in a while at baseline. And that should make you cautious to use Velcade, but you know there are situations where you have to use it because they often have other cardiac issues as well, in which case you just sort of see if those symptoms progress over time. Th- those are some of the questions um, th- that I ask. Uncertain of next steps given a patient's other medical conditions? Unclear how to handle a patient's most recent recurrence? A pharmacology question gnawing at your brain? Premum has you covered. With Premum, you can connect to leading oncology specialists across solid and liquid tumors to find answers to your patient-specific questions. Expect responses back within a day, saving you time. Make better and more confident treatment decisions thanks to the insights you receive on Premium. Premium's HIPAA-compliant platform is free to use, so sign up and give it a try today. Learn more about Premium by visiting www.tfoc.premium.co. That's tfoc.premium.co. Yeah, that I think that's so important that we realize that what is the dose limiting toxicity and when should we just switch? And and really what we've learned today, what I've learned from from your strategy now is that all comers, we think about something like a Dara VRD approach to try to get these patients into a, a deeper response in an MRD negative state. The one other kind of curiosity question that I have now. So we have our patient that we presented at the beginning with standard risk. Let's say now we're we're pressing forward with some Dara VRD and she's doing well. How often are you rechecking her her labs? When are you assessing for a response? And what is your goal response before stem cell collection? So that's a great question. Um, labs are done monthly. So like with every cycle, assuming it's a 28-day cycle, or if, you know, you get labs every 28 days. Or if it's a 21-day cycle, you get labs every 21 days. But basically with every cycle, you want to repeat the myeloma labs and you want to see that the M protein and the light chains are responding appropriately. As far as the depth of response necessary before proceeding with a stem cell transplant, 
if you look at the literature, we have been transplanting patients with partial response. Partial response has actually been one of the most common responses that we've seen at the time we were transplanted people. So I think that it is, there's no strong evidence. Uh, there's some like, you know, retrospective data from Mayo Clinic that interventions to try to deepen response before you know, transplant, like specifically, let's say somebody has just a PR, right? And they have four cycles in. Does deepening them to a VGPR lead to meaningful improvements in outcomes? The data from the Mayo Clinic would suggest that despite improvement in responses, the PFS was similar and didn't necessarily improve with efforts to deepen responses. So my personal philosophy is that PR is enough, right? If they, if they haven't even achieved a PR, which is very rare in today's day and age because almost everybody responds, then I think obviously you need to do something else to get them in a response. But PR is enough. And I, I acknowledge that there isn't good evidence. I usually don't feel comfortable collecting stem cells from somebody whose bone marrow still has a, a large amount of cancer cells. And I acknowledge that I don't have high quality data to, to guide me. So let's say I, you know, somebody might have obtained a PR, but I do a bone marrow biopsy and they still have like 30% plasma cells. It's rare, but you do sometimes see it. Uh, most of the times, you do, you know, the response is concordant in the bone marrow and in the serum. In that particular situation, yes, I would probably push for some other therapy. But by and large, PR is enough as long as the bone marrow isn't uh, is also showing a response. Um, you know, let's say the bone marrow has five percent cells, etc. I am perfectly okay to proceed with collection and transplant. At some point today, we should try to discuss about whether everybody needs a transplant because that's another question in in itself. But if my intention is to transplant, I will transplant for somebody with PR or better. All right, now that you mentioned it, let's do it. So, so we have we have a patient. And standard risk based on their cytogenetics and the LDH and all that good stuff. They got DARA-VRD, let's say six cycles of DARA-VRD. And let's say at that point, after six cycles, let's just say they're in astringency R at this point, right? So we can't find any of these plasma cells when we do our bone marrow biopsy. All of their markers have gone away. How do you think about transplant in a patient like that? And then let's take a different case. Let's say they were in a PR or a VGPR. How do you think about transplant in those patients? And we've mentioned in our prior episodes, we talked about the determination trial, and we talked about the IFM 2009 trial, where we have these improved PFS and no overall survival difference. So how do you how do you deal with this? What do you think? And how would it change? Last thing, and I know this is a loaded question, what if they were a high-risk patient? So there's a lot of nuance to, to this answer. And I think you got to individualize the answer for a patient's own values and a patient's own preferences. Several times a week, I present this data to patients. And I'm always amazed by the variety of responses that I see and how people perceive the data. There's some people who very strongly prioritize a first PFS at all costs. And then there are other people who, when presented with this data, they are like, you know, things are only getting better. If I can push a transplant, you know, down the road for now, I may never need it because I'll get something else and then I'll get another remission. So there's such heterogeneity in how patients perceive this data if you present this data to them in a, in a fair and neutral way. So I really don't have a, a strong preference one way or another. I meet people where they're at. There are many people who prioritize first PFS. I think a transplant is absolutely the best way to, to have a long first PFS. Trial after trial has shown that, you know, you'll get the longest progression-free survival with use of high-quality multi-agent multi induction therapy followed by a stem cell transplant followed by maintenance. However, the same trials have also shown that people can catch up like you can do the same high quality novel therapy. And, and that was three drugs, right? In the determination study and then collect and then do, you know, like do some additional cycles of therapy and then move them to maintenance. And then, you know, because of the abundance of other agents that are available at relapse and it's only getting better, you can, you might have a very long disease course and, and, and longevity without putting somebody through a transplant. So I meet people where they're at if they are standard risk disease that are responding well to therapy. And now the definition of well can, can vary, right? I think that if it was just a PR, maybe there'd be, again, no strong data to guide me, but maybe I would be in favor of some, you know, using stem cell transplant as a way to debulk them. But if they're CR, even if they're MRD positive, like if they really don't want to do a transplant, I'm like, that's fine. Let's collect your stem cells. 
So we have that option open. And then let's uh, sort of give you a few more cycles of therapy. Let's continue to see if your response deepens. And we have a transplant available for you if you need it. So that is my approach to standard risk myeloma. Just for standard risk myeloma, transplant should be individualized based on a patient's values. That is how I perceive it. Now for high-risk myeloma, it's a little different. We first recognize that high-risk myeloma represents a subset of patients on these uh, transplant versus no transplant trials. We should then recognize that one that in a meta-analysis done by my dear friend, Dr. Chakraborty, he pooled all these high-risk patients across these trials and he found out that, you know, with a non-transplant approach, the outcomes are dismal for high-risk myeloma. If you, let's just, let's just focus on the determination study, all right? So the determination study and their definition of high-risk does not include gain 1Q, all right? So it's deletion 17P, 414, et cetera. You're talking a median PFS of 17 months with a non-transplant approach. That's not even a year and a half. And you're talking a median PFS of 51 months with a transplant approach. Again, this is a subset. But it's a pretty impressive difference. And the same signal has been seen in other transplant versus non-transplant trials. For high-risk myeloma, you know, and by high-risk, I mean, you know, deletion 17P414. If it's just gain 1Q, I think it's a, t- it's a tough uh, call to, to answer. But if somebody has, you know, double hit or has those true high-risk features... I am much more assertive for an upfront transplant approach because I recognize that these patients uh, seem to have very poor duration of remissions with a non-transplant approach. So that's my philosophy towards transplant and and risk. Well, one of the things that you had talked about was for that standard risk patient, let's say we had our patient, she got DRVRD, she she had her stringent CR. How many additional cycles of therapy do you do? And then what is your maintenance strategy in the case of no transplant? So first of all, we have to recognize that as of today, we do not have randomized phase three trials that have resulted that have used quads in people that are, that are not going to transplant. There are trials that are ongoing and they should result uh, pretty soon. There are trials for daratumumab and there's trials for isituximab. As of today, we don't have data, okay? But those trials that are in process, they've used quads for eight cycles. So if we talk about the DERA VRD trial uh, in the non-transplant population, or I guess for people who are not undergoing a transplant, some of whom might be transplant eligible, they got eight cycles of DERA VRD, and then the Velcade was dropped and they got long-term DERA Revlimidex. Is that the best way to do it? I don't know. I mean, that's how the trial was designed, right? How I would do it, and I recognize again that this is a bit of an evidence-free zone, is that I would probably push for about eight cycles with the cord. And then I think we can have a conversation. If they're not undergoing a transplant, we can sort of have a conversation about de-escalation. Velcade would probably be the first drug I would get rid of because Velcade has a has risks of neuropathy that are proportional to the amount of time somebody's been on Velcade and the cumulative dose received. And then I think that th- this is truly a, a data-free zone, right? Because at this point in time, we don't have randomized phase three trials that have resulted. I think, you know, you can consider using MRD to sort of help your decision making. But again, we don't have randomized trials. But what I would probably do is drop the Velcade after that and then potentially plan on getting them on, you know, if they're just on DERA rev and DERAs once a month, you know, I think that is a sustainable approach, but perhaps even, um, you know, dropping DERA to a MAB and long-term rev limit maintenance is what I would probably advocate for, for such a patient population pretty soon. When I would get them to just traveling, it would sort of depend, right, on their preferences, the financial toxicity they're having, the, um, what side effects they've had, how their disease is responding, and then that's sort of how I would approach it. So just to clarify, so you're saying you're continuing them on the daratumumab. We have heard guidelines, or at least guidance, rather, that people do like two years of dara maintenance. Are you advocating and suggesting that if you wanted to in this non-transplanted patient, you can continue beyond that two-year mark? So what you heard about the two-year daratumumab usage in a patient population that, you know, you're not taking to a transplant, but who are otherwise fit for transplant, you know, that's that's arbitrary. And that's that's as much of a personal opinion as mine is. So I recognize that both of these are, you know, based on opinion. I think that we truly need some data um, in this space to determine what the optimal duration of daratumumab is. Because in the non-transplant population, which is the Maya study, which is daratumumab, Revlimid, Dexamide, 
dexamethasone that was given continuously until progression right so people stayed on it and if they were if they were responding they just continue to stay on it so i think the decision on when to stop daratumumab is truly a data free zone and i think different people have different approaches to doing this um i don't disagree with the 2 year mark i don't know if it's any better than a year and a half mark or the 3 year mark or just continuing until progression mark i think they're all different opinions without like really high quality data to guide to guide them and at this point are you doing any sort of an mrd adaptive approach i know we don't have a lot of data in this area but how are you utilizing mrd testing question number 1 question number 2 is do you use flow or ngs and what are your thoughts on that that's a great question we don't have high quality data to guide the use of mrd for actually making treatment decisions um i am very wary of escalating treatment based on mrd positivity i think there's a lot of downside to that and i think deescalating treatment based on mrd negativity is something that i'm fundamentally just more open to as a concept even though i recognize that trials are pending we don't have results just yet so first of all for people who are not taking to transplant like for elderly people who are not transplant ineligible i honestly uh, don't longitudinally check mrd i'll be very honest with you like if i'm you know my 75 year old patient comes in and i put them on dera revlimid dex as long as their m protein is continuing to go down and it could be many many years right before i need another treatment i am not going to check mrd i'm not going to put this patient through a bone marrow biopsy if i get a good 5 to 6 years which is the median pfs with maya with this approach i don't really it doesn't matter to me whether they're mrd positive or negative why put them through the suffering of a bone marrow biopsy so it's a no no for that i also think that mrd in relapsed refractory myeloma is has very little use because even if you develop even if you become mrd negative people still relapse right and they relapse pretty quickly that can also be said for newly diagnosed but at least in newly diagnosed myeloma and mrd negativity can sort of predict sometimes for a really 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 long remission acknowledging those limitations and the fact that i don't use in relapsed refractory or in elderly patient populations I think that it can be very informative. So let's say that I have somebody and you know who's got an eight cycles, I would feel much more comfortable, you know, dropping the wellcade, right? Let's say another year passes now they've been on treatment for, you know, a year and a half and now they're, you know, they've sustained MRD negativity, I would feel a lot more better about deescalating treatment even further. I would acknowledge, I would tell the patient you're kind of in a data free zone here, but I would feel more comfortable. I would still probably not feel comfortable completely stopping treatment because that's unproven territory but for somebody who I took to transplant who's been mrd negative year after year and now it's been 6 7 years post transplant i really do think that at that point in time I, it's my opinion that you can get them off revlimid and without affecting their overall longevity because they're probably going to stay in remission for a long long period of time regardless so those are some situations where i use mrd negativity so it sort of helps as an adjunct to 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 other factors in making a decision but i do think that its role is rather limited at this point in time it's going to become a much more important role but today it's fairly limited all right yeah that makes a lot of sense and you know you you had alluded to relapsed refractory disease uh, a little bit in your answer there i let's if it's okay let's switch gears and talk a little bit more about relapsed refractory disease let's say we had our our patient get the vrd induction then they go to transplant and and are on revlimid maintenance about 2 years after their transplant we see a rise in that m spike and we do a biopsy and confirm that they now have a 30% bone marrow plasma cells what what are your preferred regimens in these patients i know there are a ton of options out there and it can be kind of overwhelming if, if you're working with a patient who's just relapsed on their disease and you're looking at this giant menu of treatment options so i just want to hear what what your thoughts are there yeah absolutely so before i delve into the treatment one of the things to, to that's important to note is that this patient relapsed 2 years after a transplant if i'm hearing yeah. it correctly which mm-hmm. uh, is a lot less than the median time right so you normally hope for in the ballpark of 4 to 5 years remission we recognize that the earlier you relapse after a transplant the higher risk functionally or diseases so that's just something to sort of be aware of and it's important from a prognostic standpoint those who relapse quicker um following an order do worse now in terms of uh, treatments so, you know i'm assuming that this patient got vrd right that's what um what we said yeah. so this patient is naive to cd38 therapy and the single most important backbone drug that needs to be there in this patient's therapy is a cd38 monoclonal antibody 
You can use Deratuma map, you can use Isatuximab, both have phase three data to support them. Now, if this patient was Revlimid naive, or, or I guess not Revlimid refractory, like, you know, let's say it's the patient wasn't getting Revlimid for maintenance, my go-to would have been Deratumumab Revlimid dexamethasone based on uh, the Pollux trial. Now, this patient progressed on Revlimid maintenance, right? So that sort of yeah. rules out Revlimid-containing regimens, right? So if you look through the wealth of phase three trials that we have, you can't really use the ones that have Revlimate because this patient has progressed on Revlimate, right? So what are the options that we have that incorporate a CD38 monoclonal antibody, have phase three data to support them, and don't use Revlimate? That'll help me sort of narrow down what, what I want to do. I can use Deratumumab carfilzomib dexamethasone, right? Based on the CANDER trial, I can use isatuximab carfilzomib dexamethasone based on the IKEMA trial. I can use Deratumumab pomalidomide dexamethasone. Based on the Apollo trial, I can use isatuximab pomalidomide dexamethasone based on the Icaria trial, right? So those are, I can use deratumumab Wellcade dexamethasone. That is also an appropriate regimen. I think it's not my go-to regimen because, you know, people have gone on Wellcade in the past. They often have some neuropathy. It's not my go-to drug, but, but it is an appropriate regimen as well. And you know, there are non-CD38 containing regimens like Velcade POMDEX, right, which has phase 3 data. There's Carfilzomib POMDEX, which doesn't have phase 3 data, but is also a regimen that can be used. So as you can say, I've just already told you so many options, right? For somebody who's fit, somebody who's willing to come in for, for frequent infusions, has no cardiac toxicity, um, no cardiac issues, I would probably go with the CD38 plus PI, which is Carfilzomib, plus dexamethasone backbone. So something like DERA, carfilzomib, dexamethasone. And we're all guilty of doing cross-trial comparisons, right? Like you shouldn't, but we are guilty of that. But if you look numerically across multiple trials, you seem to get the best PFS for a CD38 plus carfilzomib plus steroid uh, regimen. So I would choose something like DERA, carfilzomib, dex for this uh, patient population. You know, I think you did mention a lot of options there, but I love the way you break that down. You know, you got to hit them with CD38 therapy if they haven't had it before. And then you look at the available data and you figure out what they've already been exposed to and rule all that out. And then you go with what seems to be best based on that. And, uh, and like you said, it seems like maybe that carfilzomib is going to give you the best bang. So um, I think, you, like you alluded to, it's a complex situation, but um, I think you break, broke it down in a really rational way. Monty, to follow up on that then, if if the person had gotten DARA in the first line setting, so they got the quad therapy up front, how would that change what you just described? So does that also mean something like isotuximab is off the table since they've seen an anti-CD38? already? Or is that still an option to add into their regimen in the relapse setting? So it's really important to know whether this, whether the CD38 monoclonal antibody was given for a short period of time, like the way I use it, you know, just for induction, or whether it was given continuously during maintenance as well, uh, which is the way, you know, the Griffin trial used it, you know, it was like a two-year course of their doing maintenance. So that is the most important thing. If they progressed while they were receiving CD38 maintenance, then CD38 is off the table. But if they progressed um, while they've been off CD38 monoclonal antibodies for several years, I would be open to using CD38 monoclonal antibodies. I would recognize that the efficacy may not be the same, right? Because they have been exposed previously. There might be some you know, mechanisms of resistance that the cells have met in the past. But I think that myself and most of my other colleagues in the myeloma space would probably be okay giving a CD38 if they're not refractory. Exposure is different, but if they're not refractory, we would be okay giving it. Now, uh, your question about isatuximab. So, you know, unfortunately, it seems that if somebody has progressed on deratumumab, especially if they progressed fairly recently, isatuximab does not work. So there was a phase two study of people who were refractory to deratumumab and the response rate of isatuximab was zero. Now, there's some retrospective single-center studies, there's some retrospective multi-center studies as well that show that in people who've previously gotten CD38, they might have gotten some other treatment in the meantime, re-challenging them with a CD38-containing combination therapy, two or three drug regimen, whether it's data or whether it's ISA, seems to have some activity. Now, this data has so many limitations, right? Like, 
maybe they would have gotten the same response rate with the two drug regimen right you don't know how much the cd38 is adding and also we don't know whether reusing data is the same as giving isetuximab in somebody who's previously been exposed but the long story short is that at least isetuximab seems to have a, a fairly minimal role in somebody who is refractory to daratumumab is is my interpretation of the literature and and let's say we have a patient and they've relapsed and let's say they weren't on daratumumab maintenance at the time of relapse. They had been off dara, they were just on revlimid. And so we said, okay, they're refractory to revlimid. How long do you continue that dara KD? Do you keep on going until progression? Do you ever drop the daratumumab? Do you ever drop the kyprolis? How do you how do you think about that? And what is your practice? So this is also a place where like the art of medicine is is is, is how we practice, right? Because the trials give it until progression or toxicity. If in my uh, personal experience, carfilzomib is the drug that bothers patients. It causes a lot more toxicity issues and quality of life issues than daratumumab does. And the other thing is that daratumumab, the frequency drops, right? So first two months, once a week, next four months, once every other week, six months and beyond, it's once a, it's once a month. So the few patients, and I remind myself that I've only been in attending for a short period of time, but the few patients who have gotten past the one-year mark, if especially if, if they're having great quality of life and they're not bothered at all, I, I might just, and if they still have residual disease, I might just still continue all of them. But if I want to drop something, I'll drop the carfilzomib. And I, and I generally do lower the dose of steroids pretty aggressively, right? So within a few months, I would have dropped, lowered the dose and you know maybe I would have gotten rid of it completely. The daratumumab is, you know, probably as an individual drug, it has probably the least side effects amongst these three. So I'd probably just sort of keep that going. But carfilzomib, I'd be open to stopping, especially if it's causing quality of life issues after about a year of therapy, if they're responding otherwise. Again, this is art and not science. And many people have different ways of doing this. And uh, another question that I had just in general for for patients We've heard about translocation 11.14 and venetoclax. Right now, do you, in your practice, if you have a, a relapse patient and you're going to always start, sounds like, with something like a Dara carfilzomib dex or a Dara palm dex or something like that, at what point do you incorporate venetoclax? Would you consider incorporating venetoclax at that first relapse point in a patient who had just relapsed if they had a translocation 11.14? So I am probably a little conservative in this regard. I think venetoclax definitely has a lot of activity in 1114. I don't think that venetoclax is a cure for 1114. I think that the activity, although very promising, is, you know, it, it it's a line of therapy and it eventually stops working. And there's a death signal, right, in a randomized study of all comers. So my personal philosophy is that I don't use venetoclax at first relapse if I am able to use the other drugs, but I would be open to using venetoclax and I actually have used venetoclax for later lines of therapy. I think some key things to note from a practical perspective about using venetoclax is that in myeloma, tumor lysis syndrome is pretty rare. So you don't need those ramp up dosings like you, like you, like you need an AML, right? So, you know, 800 milligram flat dose daily. And then I think that some sort of Antimicrobial prophylaxis is what most institutions, including myself, uh, including our institution, uh, does. Perhaps like some PJP prophylaxis, maybe some levaquin, um, you know, watching out, you know, watching the IgG levels and maybe considering IVIG. I recognize that a lot of this is based on low quality evidence, but we're obviously understandably worried because of the infection and death signal we saw with venetoclax in, in the randomized study. So I do use it, 800 milligram. Uh, no ramp up and for not at first relapse, but beyond that. And, you know, speaking of potentially dangerous therapies, um, I was recently on the inpatient service and I was was working with a patient who came who had come in with just very diffusely distributed plasma cytomas and her outpatient attending ended up giving her VDT pace. And so I think of that as kind of, you know, one of the really big guns that we can use in, in multiple myeloma. When do you when do you reach for that or do you ever? Right. So this is a great question. I think that when you're dealing with a very significant extramedullary disease burden and somebody needs urgent cytoreduction, there is definitely a role for multi-agent chemotherapy regimens such as VDT-PACE. There's a role for, you know, modified hyper-CVAD. Like there's a role for, you know, DCEP. Like, you know, there are many different concoctions that we have data to support 
to support us for situations like this where you have somebody with really aggressive disease a lot of which might be extramedullary who and that patient needs urgent cytoreduction and i think that there is a role for for treatments like this these treatments produce responses but those responses are usually short lived so they can help you debulk the the disease but you got to follow it up with something right uh, and that following up you know it could be a transplant if they haven't gotten a transplant yet it could perhaps be getting them to some sort of cellular therapy right like car t or you know some some good trial that's out there sometimes unfortunately it ends up being a bridge to nothing like they die from an infection i've seen that happen as well uh, but you just got to plan for that being a bridge to some other sort of more long term treatment but absolutely i've used it several times in the last year um, to get for situations just like what you described. Mani, you made you you mentioned CAR-T and now I have to ask as somebody that's, you know, really keeping up with the current literature and and involved in a lot of uh these academic discussions. What's on the horizon like and and specifically, you know, we've heard a lot about about bite therapy and CAR-T maybe being promising in in this myeloma sphere. What's your take on all that and and where's the field headed in in regards to these potential therapies? Absolutely. So it's a great question. So we're all very excited about CAR-T, but I think the practical rollout of CAR-T has had many limitations. There have been really long waiting lists as oppo- as opposed to lymphoma where, you know, if you want to get CAR-T, you can give CAR-T. Most centers in the United States for myeloma have waiting lists and they have like one or two slots a month, right? Like for example, our institution might get like two IDIS cell slots a month and one SILTA cell slot a month. And some other center, which are a lot busier than us, might get the same number of slots. And hence, they might have even longer waiting lists. So the problem with these waiting lists is that, you know, the, the people with the most aggressive disease, they, they die on the waiting list. And then the other thing is that you're looking at about a two-month waiting period from when the cells are, you know, collected to when they're delivered and you can infuse them. And that also acts as a selection filter and the people with the most aggressive disease biology die. For those who make it to CAR-T, especially SILTA cell, you know, the data is extremely promising, right? Like we haven't seen responses that are this prolonged in this patient population in the past, right? Like you're talking at 26 months of follow-up, the PFS was still not reached, right? That's really cool, right? Like two and a half years and, or I guess a little over two years and you're still, you know, you're, you still haven't reached your PFS. It's a highly selected patient population, but that's very promising. IDSL, you know, the PFS has been under a year um, or in the ballpark of a year consistently in whatever line of therapy has been studied in so far, um, which admittedly, I'll be honest with you, is a little underwhelming because you put patients through a lot. You put them through a waiting list. You give them a therapy that causes side effects and causes prolonged cytopenias. And, you know, at the end, you're not getting a, a very stellar cure. Uh, you're not getting a very stellar prolonged response. Yes, you are getting them time off treatment. It's a one-time thing and then they're off treatment. So I think the IDSL experience has been a little underwhelming, even though I have many patients who are still on waiting list to get IDSL. It's still a good drug, but underwhelming. So CAR-T is very promising. It's being studied now in you know, newly diagnosed patient populations. There's one trial that's being run predominantly in Europe, which is a very good trial, which is DERA VRD followed by transplant versus DERA VRD followed by SILTA cell. This trial will take a long time to show a PFS result, but it will be very, very important and very transformative. Then there's another trial, which I am uh, decidedly less enthusiastic about, which I think is an unfair trial, which is, you know, people who you're not taking to transplant, but who are fit for CAR-T, which, I mean, I don't know if such a patient population exists, right? Like if somebody's fit for CAR-T, they're fit for transplant. So in this trial, people get VRD and then they get for newly diagnosed myeloma, and then they get, you know, SILTA cell. And then the other arm gets VRD for eight cycles, and then you de-escalate to Revlimid. And this is powered for PFS. And this is, in my opinion, a very problematic trial because, well, Janssen's running the trial. If you believe in daratumumab, you should give that to the control arm, right? I mean, it's fairly straightforward, right? So I'm less excited about that trial. And I think that CAR-T has its own unique toxicities, and it may not be safer than a transplant. If you look specifically at the treatment-related mortality, and again, you're comparing 
CAR-T, which is used for multiple relapse patients, it sure seems that the treatment-related mortality is, is kind of higher for CAR-T than it is for autotransplants, which at good centers, you know, your mortality rate is in the ballpark of 1% or less. It might be that CAR-T for newly diagnosed patients is a little safer, but time will tell. So CAR-T has its own um, baggage that it comes with as far as toxicity is concerned, and it may or may not be better than a transplant in terms of efficacy, time will tell. For IDSL, the early signals we're getting, it looks like, you know, again, we don't have IDSL data for newly diagnosed, but for early relapse or for later relapse, the PFS was underwhelming and, you know, a year or less for both. You would have expected that for a little earlier of a relapse, you would have had a more better PFS, right? Because you had better immune cells. So time will tell. By specifics, off the shelf, so you know, quicker, earlier access theoretically can be given in community settings once we get better at giving them. So those are the advantages. Unfortunately, I think the bispecifics, we're seeing a lot of infections and that definitely is is um, lessening the enthusiasm a little bit, especially as we try to move them up front. So time will tell whether bispecifics are safe enough to be used indiscriminately in earlier settings. But in a relapsed refractory setting, these drugs um, appear to be extremely potent, extremely active, um, and we're very excited about them. Yeah, that, that, that's really interesting with the cellular therapy. And, and just to know that this is not the same as diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. This is not the same as pediatric B-cell ALL. When we think about CAR-T, where we have that durable long-term survival benefit in, in the relapsed refractory patients, in this patient population, which is you know, interesting. It's it's less than a year, which isn't what we wanted or what we really thought would happen with, with CAR T cell therapy in myeloma. Hopefully, these earlier introduction of CAR T can deepen responses and maybe get to a cure in some of our patients, which we've talked about in our prior episodes. The last question I want to leave with is: How do you incorporate Selenexer in your treatment strategies for relapsed refractory multiple myeloma? So that's a good question. So I want to actually, this is, this raises a very good philosophical point, which I think is very relevant for the audience of this, of this, uh, of this podcast. So I think that even if a drug had a very unethical trial that led to its approval, if the drug does show activity and efficacy, I think that, I mean, you have, you have to make the best decision for the patient in front of you, right? The trial that led to that approval might have been cruel and unethical and, you know, you don't support it. But if it showed that there was maybe some, you know, a role for it, you, you owe it to your patient to use that drug. All right. So I'm going to start off by saying that. So I'm going to put my strong feelings about how unethical the, the Boston trial was. I think the Serenexer has a very limited role um, in treatment for myeloma uh, because of all of these other options, right? Like, you know, all of these other options have a lot more activity, have a lot more efficacy and are probably safer. I think that Selenexer is less toxic than than the initial trials made it seem because when when used at a lower once a week dosing, you know, it, it still is toxic, but it has less toxicity than what was observed in the initial STORM study. I think that for somebody who you have exhausted many different classes of drugs, including, you know, you've already used BCMA targeting drugs and they are, the patient is willing to sort of, you know, they're willing to accept the toxicities and the opportunity costs that this treatment entails. It, I think that, you know, there, there may be a very limited role in a multiply relapsed patient population for a very short period of time um, after a thorough discussion. Um, there was this one patient who, you know, I remember I, you know, gone through all of these treatments and, you know, I had a discussion and then she basically opted to go on hospice. And there was another patient um, who basically, I wanted to do something for bridging, right? And I offered that patient two different like bridging options, right? One of which was, you know, a chemotherapy-based option. So I had a bit of an alkylator in it, bridging for CAR-T. And then the other one had Selenexer. And I think the thought of just chemo was enough to sort of, you know, scare her. And even though I, I frankly think Selenexer was probably more toxic than, you know, cyclophosphamide or bendamustin would have been. Um, so she sort of chose that. But by and large, very limited role, but I think that in some unique situations, it can be used. And the Boston trial, despite all of its flaws, it did show that, you know, the progression-free survival was better with Selenexer, Velcade, Dex compared to Velcade, 
decks. There was some censoring going on in that trial that sort of downplays the the PFS benefit we're seeing, but it was there, right? Like you can't neglect the you know three and a half four month PFS improvement with Selenexa-Velkidex over Velkidex. So very limited role. I've recommended it, you know, I mean, I, yeah, those are the, those are the two situations that I can think about when I think about Selenexa. And going along the lines of that, for the patients, you mentioned bridging, and we, now we've talked about, okay, the situations that we might use something like Selenexa. What are your bridging strategies for these patients? Like, can you just give us a couple of examples? You mentioned the alkylators. What, what are you using? So, if somebody's disease is stable enough where they don't need bridging, then they don't need bridging. So my preference is that if somebody can wait a few weeks and they don't need any therapy, I won't give them any therapy. So that is one option, observation with closed labs, you know, labs every one to two weeks, just looking at the trend of the light chains. If somebody was responding to a previous treatment, then you can use that previous treatment and continue that. So that is another option for bridging. A lot of clinical trials, they allow for bridging only for treatments you've already received in the past. So that's another really key thing to consider. And then you sort of got to look back at what were other things, you know, maybe they're not refractory to a PI. So maybe we can like give like Velcade, like, you know, data carcelzimib dex or data Velcade dex for a little bit. A lot of times people are naive or they haven't gotten alkylators in a long time. So after you've sort of, you know, collected them, you can maybe like give them a cyclophosphamide-based regimen for, for, for a small amount of time. Sometimes, you know, I know that, you know, Selenexer, like Cariofarm is trying to get a niche in this area. I think, you know, you can consider it, but it's definitely not my go-to, but that is another option that can be considered. Sometimes you can give a little bit of DEX to sort of keep things under control. There really is no standard and it has to be individualized based on what the patient has gotten in the past. But I want to emphasize that observation is a very valid option and using previously the previous treatment they were on to sort of keep a lid on things is also a very valid option. All right. Well, I think that was a phenomenal discussion. And I want to thank Dr. Mani Moyudin once again for, for joining us on our podcast. Thank you so much for being here. The pleasure is absolutely mine. Thank you for having me. Do you have a final takeaway point that you want to make before we say our final goodbyes for this episode? Yeah. So I think, you know, myeloma is a very, very exciting field with, um, you know, just so many amazing developments over the last you know dec- decade. But I think one of the issues that we face in myeloma is the lack of head-to-head trials. And hence, there's a lot of like, you know, opinion involved. And as I reflect on the things that I said today, a lot of them were based on opinion. And I acknowledge that I didn't have high quality data to sort of guide them. And I think that's part of like the art of being an oncologist. And that's sort of what I kind of wanted to like finish on. And that applies for whatever cancer you decide to treat is that you use imperfect data to make the best decisions for the patient in front of you, right? That's essentially what being an oncologist is, is that you synthesize all the data that you have, a lot of which is imperfect, and you apply that to the patient in front of you, and you have a discussion with them. You meet them where they're at, with their values and preferences, and you know you treat them according to those values and preferences. And hopefully, I would have sort of highlighted upon that today during the discussion, whether it comes to transplant or not, whether, you know, four drug versus three drug, two drug maintenance versus one drug maintenance, all of those basically, you know, it it captures what being an oncologist is, at least to me. That's such a good reminder. Thank you for doing that. All right, guys. Well, I think that wraps up another fantastic episode of The Fellow on Call. Until next time, we'll see you all later. See you later. Peace.